Well, good noon, everyone, and welcome to uh, Financial Services Club webinar. My name is Michael Minelli. I am one of the uh, directors of Zien Group, uh, executive chairman, and we are here today to talk with Alistair McLeod. Alistair is going to present to us on the journey to monetary gold and silver. And we're looking forward to uh, a number of very good questions. We've reserved a fair bit of time for questions today, uh, although I would encourage people on a subject like this uh, to probably stick to questions uh, rather than uh, sort of statements of political opinion, of which there will be much, I, I assume. This is part of a continuing uh, series of webinars that we're running. Uh, obviously, as well, uh, COVID-19 lockdown. Uh, means we've upped the scale and the pace of webinars, but in some ways it's allowing us to address different topics, uh, topics we might not have normally uh, had the resources to fund, and to also feature members of our wider community in the work that they do and uh, helping as ever with the Financial Services Network to create a network of people working together in a variety of ways. Alistair, is uh, the head of research at Gold Money. And Gold Money's business is very much handling physical gold. And Alistair will talk briefly about it. But this isn't a sales pitch. This is very much a discussion on what is the future of fiat currency. Now, with governments around the world uh, adding fiscal and monetary stimuli, uh, approaching 3% in many cases, in an extremely short period of time, this might be what many people have been predicting for some time, the perfect storm uh, that looms for us in terms of how we as society manage our money. And it would be interesting to contemplate, therefore, uh, what is the future of some of the many things that have been talked about uh, from trade currencies, through cryptocurrencies, through reports that uh, Zien has done over the years in subjects such as common tenders uh, and on to, of course, the old war horses of gold and silver. Alistair, the floor is yours. That's very kind. Thank you, Michael. Uh, before I start, I think I ought to say where I'm coming from as, as the modern, modern idiom goes. Uh, basically, I believe in sound money. Um, I dislike unsound money, unsound money that being corrupted by governments at the expense of uh, those that use it, those that earn money, if you like, earn wages in it, and so on and so forth. Attempts to manage prices through uh, uh, fiat currency uh, are essentially um, a covered up fraud, if you like. It's legal, but covered up fraud, which very, very few people understand, which is why it is such a popular thing. So having got that out, out of the way, um, I think that the changes that we have seen um, in uh, government policy as a result of the coronavirus has actually brought on very, very rapidly um, the debauchment of the currency. And that basically is the topic of this talk. If we go on to slide two, please, Michael. That's it. Um, the thing that's interesting is that if you ask a Brit, um, you know, have you seen the currency go down? And they say, yeah, sure. I mean, I remember when it was 240 to the dollar. What they don't seem to realize is the dollar itself has fallen very substantially. And if we go back to 
um, the time roughly uh, shortly after the London gold pool, pool fa failed, when uh, the $35 per ounce uh, exchange rate um, uh, basically gave way. And you can see that um, on this chart, the purchasing power of paper currencies has declined very rapidly. I mean, the Japanese yen uh, is probably been the strongest. That's lost 93% of its purchasing power measured in gold. The dollar has lost 97.8%. The euro, 98.5%, and that includes the constituents of the euro before um, uh, the euro was formally launched. And uh, sterling has lost 98.8%. So it's got, sterling's got about 1.2% of its 1969 purchasing power left in it. That is a massive, massive slide. Um, can we have the next slide, please? If you look at um, what we call the fiat money quantity, now this is something that I put together, and it is the sum of money in circulation, um, that's cash, checking accounts, uh, savings deposits, um, uh, and various other smaller accounts, plus on top of that, the reserves that banks have at the Fed. In other words, both fiat dollars in circulation and those not in circulation, uh, that is what that chart represents. Now, um, it has increased from that 1969 time up to the current level, which is uh, a bit over $16 trillion, um, roughly 31 times. Now, 31 times equates very, very nicely with the devaluation of the dollar uh, measured in gold. Um, it represents, I think, 96.8%. So you can see that uh, we're getting uh, confirmation that it's not just gold going up, but the expansion of the fiat dollars has more or less matched the rise in the price of gold measured in dollars, and uh, therefore confirms that there has been, over the period of time, a fairly orderly retreat in the value of the purchasing power of the dollar as a result of its debasement. So um, th that uh, really, if we can go on to the next stage, please, Michael. Next slide, rather. Hello? Michael, can we have the next slide? Just there. Yeah, the next slide. That's it, thank you. Um, now, there, there are uh, effectively, I mean, that's the first stage of the fiat currency collapse, um, where it just loses purchasing power in an orderly fashion. And this was almost uh, the situation with um, uh, in, in Germany. I mean, before the First World War, Bismarck uh, spent a lot of money on building up armaments. Um, and that was basically uh, through monetary expansion, financed through monetary expansion. The war was financed on monetary expansion. And of course, that continued after the war uh, at the time of reparations and so on. And it was, uh, that was really the first stage. And the, the um, loss of purchasing power of the currency more or less matched uh, the expansion of uh, the, its quantity. But then there is a final uh, and second um, descent into worthlessness. And this is when the public suddenly realize what is happening to money. And so they dump it at, uh, uh, you know, they dump it as rapidly as they possibly can. And in Germany, we had the story about uh, how someone went into a shop to pay for something and he had a wheelbarrow full of um, Reichsmarks and uh, by the time he got out of the shop he found that the wheelbarrow had been stolen and all the money left on the pavement. That if you like is that final 
that is where the final uh, flight out of money into um, what, what was called by the early economists a crack-up boom. Uh, that is the second bit. Now, where we are in this is obviously we're on the verge of another massive expansion in the quantity of money. So uh, it could well be that we are about to enter that second phase, the final rapid descent into worthlessness. Can I have the next slide, please, Michael? Hello, Michael. This is being very slow. I don't know. All oh, right, no, we're there. Okay, but uh, now I think if, to, to understand that first phase and why it sort of, uh, you know, the devaluation occurs is we have to look at monetary policy objectives, and I would put them in this in this order. The most important thing is to fund the government. That is the reason why banks are licensed, um, and uh, this is done through the management of commercial banks and by managing the economy to maximise tax revenues. From the government's point of view, um, you will see that senior civil servants, for example, lose touch with the electorate. They think they're superior to the electorate. It's very, very easy when you've got the ability to print money to disconnect the operation of government from the public. And that is what we have seen um, with Brexit. And it's also what we, we, we saw when President Trump was elected. He's had a huge, great fight as a populist. Um, uh, against the deep state, if you like, as they call it, uh, uh, based in, in Langley. Um, and they do this. Basically, the, these objectives are achieved for the government by suppressing interest rates, suppressing the cost of borrowing, and controlling the money supply. Can I have the next slide, please? That's it. Right. Um, now, the, the evolution of, of government spending is not just current expenditure that we're talking about, but also there are accumulated um, commitments, welfare commitments uh, in the future. And in the case of the, of the United States, um, Lawrence Kotrikoff back in 2012 estimated that the future, the net present value of future welfare commitments was around about 212 trillion. I was talking to someone um, who was interviewing me the other day, and he had interviewed Kotlikoff shortly before, and he told me that Kotlikoff was now looking at 250 trillion. Now, whether that's right or not, I can't substantiate. But in any event, these are huge, huge numbers. And apart from the problems that we have with uh, coronavirus, um, these unfunded uh, um, expenditures are now beginning to impact on government spending. So... That is another aspect, if you like, of why the expansion of money has really occurred. Can I have the next slide, please, Michael? And I want to talk about the credit cycle here. Now, people don't realize that there is a credit cycle. They think it is a business cycle. But actually, the thing that drives the business cycle is the credit cycle. Now, this is very important because if you think it's a business cycle, then this is a problem of the private sector. If you think, if you understand that it's a credit cycle, it is actually a problem of uh, government and, uh, and commercial banks. Now, to explain this a little bit, some of the members in this audience may not understand that fractional reserve banking allows banks to increase the amount of credit in the economy when things are looking good. Now, in any part of the cycle, 
you, if you start off uh, post-crisis, um, as it were, the economy has been rested, it's rescued, it has stopped um, falling. And consequently, uh, things begin to pick up. And under those circumstances, uh, bankers' confidence gradually begins to uh, reassert itself. And uh, they expand their balance sheets. And they expand that, their balance sheets all in unison because they compete with each other. And also they are very much uh, subject, if you like, to sort of, you know, group think, that sort of crowd um, uh, effect. And uh, it gets to the stage where that long expansionary phrase, phase uh, means that banks get overgeared. And then that if anything happens which upsets the outlook for the economy, these bankers begin to think in terms of risk. Now, the moment they do that, they start contracting credit. And it is something that all banks tend to do at the same time. So a long expansionary phase tends to be followed by a rapid contraction. Now, the objective of monetary policy from the central bank is to promote expansion and avoid the contraction. But since central bankers tend not to understand the origin of it is a credit cycle and not a business cycle, they are not necessarily equipped to manage this effectively. Now, the current contraction, if I can have another, the next slide, please, Michael. The current contraction of bank credit um, really started in about September. At least that's when we noticed it. And this was the moment, I think September the 10th, thereabouts, or September the 8th, that the repo market suddenly went crazy in America. Um, and uh, for whatever reason, uh, there was suddenly a shortage of liquidity in the banking system. Now, uh, this can only really occur when banks stop expanding bank credit. So they got to the point in this case where there was a limitation on uh, the ratios, and particularly with the GSIPs, the globally systemic, the global systemically important banks, they got to the point where they hadn't sufficient liquidity left to continue lending to people like hedge funds on the one hand and funding the uh, U.S. Treasury's increasing demands on the other. Those two uh, particular things showed that uh, the whole of the credit expansion was beginning to judder to a halt. So um, that was about five months before this um, coronavirus problem actually happened. And so after that, we had the coronavirus. Now, uh, sorry, next slide, please, Michael. The coronavirus um, uh, came at probably the worst possible time. The global economy had already um, seen a downturn. I mean, this was mainly because you had a combination of the end of that expansionary phase, and it was hit at the same time by, um, of the last two years, uh, Trump's uh, attempt to introduce trade restrictions on uh, Chinese imports through tariffs. And this actually, for those that are interested, is very similar to the situation in 1929, when after a period of credit expansion, the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act was enacted. The Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act, plus that period of credit expansion through 1920s, when it ended, and that was uh, October, September, October uh, 1929, it took Wall Street, the, the Wall Street Dow Jones Index down from a high 
to allow the following, I think it was 1932, mid-1932, when the index lost 90%. Now, there are some similarities with the current situation, between the current situation and that situation in 1929, being potentially the synergistic effect, effect of uh, trade tariffs, on the one hand, uh, coming at the end of a long period of credit expansion. So our global economy is already facing a massive downturn. And then along comes the coronavirus, and basically production ceases in all major economies in lockdown. Now, the payment disruption uh, in this case is we're looking at supply chains. Now, the supply chains are not just the GDP figure. They are all the payments that go towards making a final product. And that in America is captured in a statistic called gross output. A gross output, and this is only onshore in America, is uh, around about $38 trillion. That's the last recorded number. So we're looking at the payment chains in, uh, in that $38 trillion. Now, that is a massive, massive problem. So the amount of uh, expansion of money supply in order to, do, to, to stop all that falling over is obviously a lot larger than anybody really thinks at this stage. And furthermore, we've got similar payment problems elsewhere, because when a product arrives in America from, say, China, you've got all the, um, uh, you, you've got all the supply chain problems going into the manufacture of the, of the product there. And that can involve imports into China from Korea. It can involve uh, stuff coming in from other parts of Southeast Asia, and so on and so forth. So really, the whole non-food, non-essential economy has pretty well ground to a halt. The effect of this is major. The amount of money required to cover these failed payments is of enormous proportion. And it does mean that central banks are now committed to rescue their economies by infinite money printing. So if I could have the next stage, please. Um, so we go back to one of the earlier slides where I said, all major currencies have declined against gold over time, and there are two stages in that decline. The first is the prolonged period, which I believe is now over, and the second is the final rapid descent into worthlessness, characterized by a public flight out of money, irrespective of the money quantity. So here we are, I think, on the verge of a second um, inflationary um, phase. Now, Looking through history, I think the best um, comparison that I have seen with the John Law inc uh, incident in France uh, with the Mississippi bubble back in 1720. Now, basically, Law did exactly what central banks are doing today. He tried to puff up his Mississippi bubble by printing Libra. Today, central banks try to maintain asset values, particularly the values of um, government uh, debt, by printing money through QE, through purchasing, which basically means the pursuing of money into the public sector. So, or sorry, into, into, into the wider economy. So central banks are debauching their currency to maintain financial asset values. The similarity is striking. The, uh, if you like, the, the uh, length of time involved on the run up to phase two, stage two, was considerably shorter in Law's, uh, uh, in Law's example. But once things start falling apart, I think you'll find that 
they fall apart really very, very rapidly. Could I have the next uh, slide, please, Michael? So that's roughly where we are. We've got a situation where gold and silver are sound money. They have always been sound money. And fiat, fiat currency, is probably on a rapid, rapid decline. In the case of John Law, um, the scheme was uh, to merge his central bank, the Banque Royale, with um, the Mississippi Venture, was uh, scheduled for the 28th of February, 1720. By um, the following September, the shares had some notional value. I think they'd fallen from about 12,000 Libra to about 1,000 Libra. But the Libra itself had no quotation in London, which basically meant that it was valueless. So that was a time phase, phase for law. If you look at um, the great inflation in Germany, uh, the second phase started in approximately May uh, 1923, and it ran through to complete worthlessness the following November. So we're looking, if you like, on the basis of history, empirical evidence, uh, at something that could take as little uh, or less than a year to take place. Now, given the massive production of money that is required, given that at the same time, the commercial banks will be trying to control their risk, which means that their, um, if you like, ability to pass on uh, all the money that the government is offering, each government is offering, um, that's going to be highly, highly restricted. Well, with banks really looking at their own risks and trying to control those, you have got a banking system in, um, uh, in Europe, which looks like that will fall apart. I mean, if I look at Deutsche Bank, the relationship between shareholder funds and the balance sheets. The balance sheet is 22 times uh, shareholders' funds. Now, that is just, um, uh, you know, sort of in incredible gearing. Barclays is around about 21, 22%. BNP, 22 times, sorry, percent, times, times, I should say. So you can see that there are certain banks which are very highly geared in Europe, not just in the Eurozone, but also uh, in the UK. Now, on that basis, um, if you're a director of those banks and you have seen the outlook really change for the worst, what do you do? You try as hard as you can to protect the bank. And that is what we're going to see. So the central banks in pushing this money and governments, if you like, pushing money into the economy are going to find that the banks are obstructive when it comes to achieving that outcome. So I think that the rest of... Um, 2020 is going to be an extremely uh, turbulent year. Um, I would expect fiat money to basically disappear. Um, it could be by the end of this year, if you look at the timing of uh, previous events throughout history. And um, so built up. And my final slide basically says that gold and silver are the only sound money and will return after fiat has died. How it returns is another question, but we could probably discuss that. Thank you for listening. Alistair, thank you very much. That was an absolutely fascinating presentation and uh, quite short and sharp in its way. Uh, one of the things I, I notice on this is that we constantly have people talking about monetary collapse. And you emphasize the point that it, it seems to dribble and then it goes off the edge of a cliff. In many ways, similar to the uh, lack of preparation for a pandemic and having known that SARS was coming uh, in 2003 uh, and then bypassed us. We, uh, 17 years later, 
uh, don't seem to have bothered to prepare. So uh, a very salutary point there. Uh, just to sort of uh, spice things up a little bit, um, we're going to have a quick poll, if, uh, if you don't mind, of the audience. You've been listening. We'll come to the questions in a moment. But I was just wondering if you might want to uh, quickly give a, a view of what you think is going to happen uh, post-COVID so that we can have a, a little think about uh, uh, your thoughts uh, before we move on to the questions. So you just uh, have about uh, 15 seconds to uh, click on whether you think it's the end of fiat currencies. Are we gonna be replaced by gold and silver as Alistair maintains? Is it going to move to something like a central bank digital currency or is it just business as usual? I'm going to close the poll in a second. Great. Well, we've had 71% uh, of you have voted uh, out of the uh, 47 people online. And there's a pretty uh, interesting bit here. We've got a lot of uh, central bank digital currency, CBDC supporters, and a lot of people probably like myself that life goes on as usual. Uh, so, Alistair, I think you're going to have a little bit of work here uh, with the audience on the replacement of fiat currencies uh, by gold and silver. But let's uh, let's move on uh, to some of the questions. Uh, a question of fact, if I don't mind, from Martin Watkins, is that could you just uh, repeat again your your the time period of that decline in your very first slide, and also what happened to, to silver at the same time, please? Uh, well, silver, um, being an, basically an industrial uh, metal, um, didn't really reflect too much uh, monetary characteristics. And you may recall that uh, the bunker hunts uh, tried to corner the market back, I think it was in 1971, 72, 72, 73, I think. Um, so you had a real spike up then. Silver went up, if I recall around about $50 very briefly. And then uh, COMEX changed the rules, um, and that one went away. And then there was a, a second spike um, about uh, eight or nine years ago, um, was that 2012, when it again achieved the same sort of thing. So that doesn't really tell us anything. Uh, the time scale that I, I took on um, that uh, first chart was really um, meant to coincide with the end of um, gold convertibility under the Bretton Woods Agreement. And um, so really, that was the time when, uh, well, particularly in 71, I mean, there were a few, a few rises in the official price of gold. We went from $35 to 42.22. And then it was finally abandoned by President Nixon in August of 1971. And so that's the relevance, if you like, of the starting point on that chart. Um, you're probably more familiar with the chart of gold rather than the blue line on that chart, um, with the gold price rising first until the end of 1979, then entering a, a prolonged bear market, um, before uh, beginning to recover around about uh, the year 2000. Um, so that, I think, puts that into context. Is there any Anything else I've missed in answering that one on that? No, I think that's question. plenty there. I've got a few questions here, so I'd like to speed up a bit. We had a yeah. really good question here on, do you think that 
governments uh, might decide to confiscate confiscate gold the way that they did uh, back uh, the U.S. government did back in the 30s? Um, I think yes. I mean, this is something that the Americans did, um, and uh, then shortly afterwards uh, they um, devalued the dollar, revalued gold, if you like, from 20.67 uh, dollars to the ounce to 35 dollars to the ounce. So it was really um, uh, theft of people's gold. I think is the answer. Uh, legalized theft, of course. Everything that government does is legal, hopefully. Uh, and uh, I do think there is a possibility of that. Um, until recently, I've rather taken the view that um, because governments do not like to see the price of gold rising, they would uh, look at the effects on the gold price of any such confiscation. Now, nowadays, I think people, um, I wouldn't be wrong of me to say that uh, they, they, they don't follow the law quite as slavishly as they might have done in the 1930s. But I think... The objective of trying to control the gold price by confiscation, I think, would have a great risk of backfiring, um, partly because uh, China now effectively controls the physical market. Uh, Russia has uh, replaced um, her dollar reserves mostly with gold and uh, just, just announced, a, if you like, a, a temporary stop in doing that. But um, I think that... I think that the chances of gold confiscation are probably increasing, but they will not get, I think, agreement at G7, G20 level. I think this is something that might be perpetrated by one state against its own citizens. Okay. And, uh, Alistair, another quick question here, but if we could keep it uh, short and sharp. What do you think about uh, governments using a digitized form of self-liquidating stamp script money? Uh, as used in the Great Depression, uh, to cure virus-infected economies without deficits, more debt, or taxes. <laughs> well, I mean, there's been a lot of um, a lot of research done by central banks into you know blockchain technology and all the rest of it, and virtually everybody who understands that there is a problem with fiat currencies comes out with some story about um, there's going to be a global currency reset. Um, and we even had Mark Carney talking about this at the last Jackson Hole conference. So I can see that um, there's a lot of chatter about it. But this, I believe, is going to happen so quickly that I don't think uh, central banks are going to be able to do anything about it. Hello? One of the listeners... Uh... I think you answered this question, but would like to know, could you please give an idea about a time horizon for the inflationary collapse? Well, um, if you, yes, I mean, I think, I think if you followed my presentation, you would see that history, empirical evidence suggests it happens very, very quickly once it starts. And I can see that uh, given the scale of the problem, given that um, central banks are, will try and rescue all the payment failures um, in, in uh, the supply chains, uh, this, I think, could happen very, very rapidly. And in my view, we will be lucky if we still have, or unlucky, if you like, if we still have fiat currencies at the end of this year. Okay, well, that's uh, that's been a really fascinating uh, canter through things. Folks, there is a, there's a facility on here for Alistair to get back to you individually for the questions that uh, haven't been answered in the time that's available. But I'd like to close, if you don't mind, with just a, a final poll uh, from us. 
which is looking at uh, your thoughts on where the gold price will be. And Alistair, do you just want to tell us where the gold price is today? Gold price is about uh, 1660, I think, last sort. 1660, 1662, 1657. Great. So uh, below $400, uh, between 400 and 1200, roughly where it is today, or is it going to go through the roof? We're collecting responses now. After that, after that, I'll give you my uh, my uh, my my forecast. Oh, give it while they're give it while they're collecting. Come on. <laughs> okay, there will be no price. Sorry, there will be no price. No price for gold. Okay. Well, I've got uh, pleasant news for you. Your audience seems to agree with you. Uh, I.e., I, no price at all. It is going to go well above two thousand dollars. Interesting that over half the audience believe that we're going to see a major surge in gold. Yeah, uh, that's probably... interesting. I do know that's roughly where I, what I would expect, Michael, because um, I don't think anyone uh, expects the complete collapse of paper currencies in such short order. Um, I have come across nobody else who thinks what I think. So um, I would have thought that uh, your audience would be very unlikely to agree with me, having sprung this one on them. They might change their mind if they think about it a bit, but having sprung it on them, I don't think um, uh, they would go with it. But I think increasingly people can see the inflationary implications of um, uh, government policies, uh, you know, so just creating trillions of dollars out of thin air and other countries doing the same. So uh, over $2,000, I don't think, is a very hard call. Well, I'd like to end, if I could, on a, what a slide I've always enjoyed, the kind of never-ending cascade, the circularity in the monetary system, uh, where instead of having coins, we have these lustrous uh, pieces of bullion uh, circulating through. Is this the world that we're facing? I would remind our listeners that for many years now, for 15 years, we've had a program called the Internal Coin uh, running within Long Finance. It's been a project really designed around a thought experiment. Could you ever build a coin that had eternal value? Uh, and that just br brings up all sorts of things about the self-referential system, which uh, money is, uh, the discussion of the meaning of GDP, uh, whether or not we're actually getting better or just the numbers are going up. Where are these boom and busts coming from? Should we have competing currencies? And is money truly a place that should be a long-term store of value? Uh, I would remind you that we have some forthcoming webinars later today, no less. We have a communities chest where George Littlejohn of the CISI is going to be chatting with me about what's top of his entry. Uh, Patrick Young will be joining us uh, next week for a discussion on cryptocurrencies in Malta. We uh, will be looking at a discussion session on emerging markets uh, next week as well. And Bob Garrett will be coming on board uh, to revisit what a 21st century board will look like. So there's a lot ahead of us. But uh, whilst I would like to thank all of you uh, for your questions and for participating in the poll, I think all of us uh, would like to thank Alistair for a very illuminating uh, and slightly contentious view of the world, but one that we clearly need to pay attention to. Thank you very much, Alistair. No, thank you, everybody. And good day.